Lord, I thank you so much for everyone who's here and everyone who um, is hearing my voice right now. God, would you speak through me? Would you speak um, only what you want our congregation to hear? Would you speak, Lord, uh, and, and uh, allow um, the things that come out of my mouth to come straight um, from your heart uh, as we have read inside of your word, Lord? Uh, I ask for uh, an anointing in this one. I ask for you to anoint the ears of everyone here in my presence today. And God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a discerning heart to know what it is um, that you have called us as a church and um, as individuals um, how, how to engage as a community. And we ask for this right now in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Well, um, we are winding down a, uh, a series that we've been going through in the, in the, for the most part of the summer called Perspective Shift. And so we've invited a number of guest speakers to come and uh, give their idea, their take, their understanding on three familiar topics that we talk about on a fairly regular basis, which is the idea of these pillars, devotion, community, and mission inside uh, of our church. And what we want to do is say, okay, what is, we, we talk about this, we have this idea of what we think it means, we go to the scriptures, but sometimes other people's perspectives can help fill in the gaps for things that we haven't seen. And so we've had multiple speakers say, in fact, somebody was supposed to be speaking um, today and not me, Pastor Darrow, who is the pastor of El Shaddai, the Indonesian church that meets in our building after our service every week, but he wasn't available today and we couldn't figure out a way to work it into the series. And so I'll be speaking on community once again and then ending the series next week on mission together. Um, before we jump in, I am speaking from a perspective shift that I walked through, uh, I mean, in, in small parts for a long time over years, but there was a sermon that I listened to at a conference that I got to attend virtually called Discipling Out Racism. It was led by a guy named Albert Tate, and the person who was speaking, Ricky Jenkins, gave a sermon that just added a little bit of perspective to Acts 6 that I hadn't seen before. And so I owe a debt of gratitude to Ricky Jenkins because I used a lot of his insight when when I built this, um, this today, and then obviously, y'all know me, I, I had to add some other exegetical things and um, throw in some other uh, things I, that I got to do some research on. But I want to invite you all right now, go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Um, Acts chapter 6, or turn to it on your phone. Now, when I first came uh, to, like the first time I ever experienced like an immersion into, into a Christian environment, I guess, um, it was when I went to a small Bible college. Now, if, for those of you who are new, um, if, for those of you who are old, you know this, but if you're new, I did not grow up in a Christian household. I came to know Jesus in, I don't know, 14, 15, 16, somewhere in there in high school. And then um, I was fast-tracked into Christian culture when I went to a Christian college in Phoenix, Arizona. It was a small conservative Baptist college. I've been repenting ever since. <laughs> um, but what happened was there was a whole group of guys, right, four men living in this uh, on-campus apartment, and it was, I mean, my direct, guy, the guy who was in the room with me had been out of prison for maybe three days. There was another guy um, in the other room uh, who had come from a, you know, a different part of Phoenix, and then, um, and he had kind of maybe some rough background-ish, and then we had this other guy who was, you know, he grew up on, in, a, in a homeschool kind of area. I remember the first day I met him, he was, uh, he was like, man, I can name all of the tribes of Israel. I'm like, that's a weird flex, bro. I don't know if, I don't, I don't know what world you came into where you're going to kind of come at me with these tribes, but you could see we had all these perspectives from rough 
to non-engaged, to very little knowledge on my part of the scriptures, to somebody who had all of the different, uh, you know, minuscule details of the scriptures memorized, committed to memory, and they throw us all into this room together. And, and the obvious point that I want you to make and that we've kind of made with community over and over again is this. Whenever you bring a group of people together, you're going to have to negotiate with one another. You have to collaborate. You, you, you end up in a situation where you don't get what you want anymore. And we've talked about this before. You can have um, everything you want exactly how you want it if you want to be alone, right? But if you've grown up with siblings, if you've ever been married, if you have roommates in your living situation, any kind of community is going to start shaping you and changing you, and you have to have this conflict at times that stretches. You share things. Um, but as you're as you're interacting, like my family always did it this way. Well, I grew up doing it this way. And my other roommate's like, well, in prison, we did it this way. And we just did whatever he said because you don't argue with that dude. There's growth. There's learning. And you get introduced to new things, right? There's something beautiful about it on the other side. It reveals things about you. You learn selfishness inside of you that maybe you don't like, pride. Or maybe you go on the other end and you develop a loving willingness to submit to one another and to work things out. And if you're committed to not leaving, if you're on level footing, then you can make that happen. But you have to be these two things. You must be willing to listen and you must be willing to change. All right, you must be willing to listen and you must be willing to change. And this is what we're going to, um, we're going to interact with here today. Um, one of the things that I want to ask you before we move on is just to recall a moment wherein you had to interact with someone and compromise. All right, bring that to mind. Maybe that was this morning as you were trying to get out the door. Maybe, there, maybe there's a work situation where you really wanted something to go this way, but someone else's opinion weighed heavier and it went a different way. And I want you just to think of that all right, in fact, let's go ahead and just do a reflection moment, our, our old school reflection moment. I'm gonna take one minute just to stop. I want you to recall a moment to mind, a story wherein you realized that you had to change or compromise your way of doing things with someone else, all right? And I'm gonna give you just one minute. Go ahead and talk with someone. You can think about it, you can write it, um, or, or something else, but just discuss, maybe tell the story to someone next to you, a time when you had to compromise um, due to being in community with someone. All right, go ahead and do that now, and I'll call you back when there's 30 seconds left. Go ahead and put 30 seconds on the board and we'll bring it back together. I'm just going to do a verbal countdown. I, I didn't tell you, sorry. Five, four, three, two, one. Was that moment hard for you? That's my question. Was that moment difficult for you? 
Was it easy to give in? Was it hard? Was it difficult? Or was it a a fairly normative part of your interactions? My guess is if you're around a lot of people, that is pretty normal. And if you're not, then it's not as easy to accomplish, right? Now, I want you to take that moment and add to it. What if if you and the person you're trying to compromise actually have history together? What if you've actually had conflict in your past? If you broaden that even further, what if your families had conflict and they've had conflict for a long time and then you're in this situation where you've got to work something out together but you have all this baggage. You think of uh, what William Shakespeare tried to capture in Romeo and Juliet as these feuding families and then they come together and they're not sure how they're going to bring this back to their families and it obviously doesn't go well in that situation, right? But what if there's years and years of conflict, beef, tribal, communal feuding between you and your group of people and another one? Welcome to the world of first century Jerusalem as Jesus is walking through this. The church is being born with all kinds of conflicting groups trying to interact together. This is the context of Acts when we jump into it. And this is what we see is that there's people with all kinds of backgrounds, living conditions, ethnicities, cultures colliding. And they have lots of conflict in their history. And I'm going to read to you right now how the book, uh, how the, the first century church in this community works through one of their conflicts. Verse 1, chapter 6 of Acts, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, meaning people are coming into um, Christianity, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, if you're in this distribution of food, you're already of low status, right? That means you didn't bring anything to the table at the beginning. You're already in a situation where um, you have a couple of cross-sections or intersections of marginalization taking place in your life, and then you come into the church, and what happens is you're being overlooked by the distribution of the food in that situation. Now, it's possible that this group, and in a few uh, commentaries they advocated for this, it's possible that the group was simply overlooked and it was an accident. But the Greek word indicates that there is possibly a level of intention going on. And when you take that, um, in fact, reading your Bibles, uh, your, your translations made a decision for you on behalf of whether or not they were going to sympathize with the, the early believers or the, the um, widows who were being um, overlooked in this. It'll weight that word a little bit differently. And so depending on who you want to sympathize with, you can kind of depict it one way or the other, but this is the fact of their background. Neglect was taking place. That wasn't acceptable, but historically, these two groups did not get along very well. The Hebraic and the Hellenistic Jews were two different groups in this church with different backgrounds. And while they're both considered ethnically Jewish, they had different languages, they had a different culture, they had different expressions, and conflict arose in that situation. And the Hebraic Christians take a lot of pride in their Jewish history, in their identity. They maintained a distinctly Jewish lifestyle and spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. But then the Hellenists, on the other hand, were Jews who grew up in a different context. They had allowed a Greek lifestyle to affect the way that they lived, and they had adopted these Greek customs. Now, in the Jewish New Testament commentary, it says this, the division between Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking Jews dates from the conquest of Alexander the Great in 323 BCE. He and his successors introduced the Greek language and Greek culture to the lands that they ruled. Now, listen to this. The Hebraists considered the Hellenists to have developed an adulterated Judaism which had assimilated elements of the pagan culture around them. 
Now, though both groups were Jewish, of Jewish descent, there's distinct and obvious cultural differences and discord begins to arise. The Hebrew-speaking group looked down on the Greeks for having compromised their Jewish existence. And so they're trying to figure out how do we integrate this group of people into the existing group of people when there is history and it's not good. And immediately, right there in the very first century, a wall of division is erected in the midst of the first century church. A social class hierarchy has been established, and there's ethnic and culturally charged reasons for this. And so just like that, marginalization in the community has been baked not just into hearts, not just into minds, but literally into the system of their community regarding the distribution of goods. And so much of what today's content is going to be applied to, because of the context where I drew it from, is going to be uh, uh, in application towards racial tensions here in America, as we've already um, done. And this is serving as a reminder for us as a church. We've decided this is going to be something we're going to be about. But I want you to notice how naturally and how often this comes up in Scripture in and of itself. And what we see in Acts 6 is that those being neglected are in a minority position, the Hellenists. And they speak out about what happened. They decide to lift their voice and and to bring a complaint. It says that the Hellenistic Jews complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So what do the disciples do about that? Well, let's read the next verse. It says, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, you've probably heard this verse preached more on that latter part. They can't waste time. They have to delegate. This is a very uh, leadership-oriented, uh, how you organize your, uh, your business or your church or whatever it is, right? We have to have the right people in the right places. But I want to call your attention more to that first part. They gathered all the disciples together, and then they began to discern what was going to take place because of what happened. And so what I want you to see very, very specifically in here, they did not ignore the complaint. They listened. They were open to hearing. They, they in fact, called a gathering because they said, oh, there's something wrong. Let's find out more about what that is. They considered all of the different variables going on. Is this a matter that we need to get involved with directly? Or should we maintain that what we're doing over here with the preaching uh, and, and, and working with God's word? And you can tell from this quick engagement, the leadership, that they had created, at least to some extent, a safe place where a very difficult conversation can actually be had. And so there's this environment. Someone speaks out, something's wrong, and they're saying, okay, let's, let's hear you out. Difficult conversations, and this is something I appreciate about Ricky Jenkins, difficult conversations, he said this, including those that our church, this is my side note, including those that our church has ventured into, should be normalized. Let me read it again since I had to chop it up. Difficult conversations should be normalized so that when they're brought up and when a conversation needs to take place, it can happen. If we put a topic or a conversation or an issue, hide it away, tuck it back into somewhere else, it becomes much more difficult to bring it back out when that thing comes out on its own. So in our church, we've made a decision to center the topic of ethnic division inside of our uh, nation. 
It wasn't easy, and we've taken some hits because of that, but one of the commitments that we made inside of is we didn't want this just to be a topic we just had a series on once a year, or every time MLK came around, we would bring it up just during those times. And so what we did is we wanted to normalize this inside of our everyday preaching. And so I'm excited that we have a a culture that created for me as a preacher the ability to say, okay, then we need to diversify some of our, our commentaries that we draw from. We need to diversify the people we ask in in what kinds of topics need to be dealt in so that this would be a regular part of the flow, the fluid movement of what we talk about. And it can casually be brought up. And then when the more difficult conversations take place, they're not so difficult because it's just a part of what the scriptures are addressing on a regular basis. Now, I want to say we have a long ways as a church to go. And there's lots of other issues that need to be normalized. But my point is that the disciples to their credit, we're able to hear the complaint. It gets brought up. We're being overlooked. Somebody needs to do something. And instead of pushing it away, instead of hiding their shortcomings, instead of denying that there's a problem, writing it off as, well, my widow's needs are being met, so that's not my issue. That's y'all's problem. They owned it and said, no, no, that's our problem. They didn't dodge it. They didn't get defensive. Well, that's critical race theory or all widows matter, right? And I was just in a conversation recently with a group of pastors. um, And uh, I don't know why this topic got brought up. I didn't uh, bring it up. But immediately someone said, I don't know why people are so been out of shape about race. I mean, did you see what happened in Brazil? They did way worse things, and the, and the, and the uh, level of oppression was way worse. And someone, yeah, yeah, you're right. And uh, it's not like we started it. We inherited slavery from someone else. And then someone else brought up, well, all of the, you know, the stuff wasn't all bad, right? There was some good things that got happening here. And then they made the mistake of saying, hey, what do you think about this? <laughs> I said, I don't know why you all have a need to dodge owning the fact that this is in your history. And so I'm like, you're just trying to act like you can point the finger at Brazil instead of owning it. You can point the finger at this instead of owning it. Just own it. Just own this. It's a part of American history that is horrific. But if we make it our habit to hide it, to look away, to put it under the rug and sweep it under there and act like it didn't happen. Wounds don't heal that way. And so I want to say, in this, as it was so pertinent in this moment as I was preparing for this, when issues get brought up on a regular basis, even difficult ones, they become a little bit easier to talk about. So we want to make sure that this is a casual part of our conversation. There was a willingness inside of the first century church not just to hear, but to discern, to weigh it correctly, to say, let's take this seriously. And I want to recognize not all issues are gospel-informed. Listen, I have emails all the time from random stuff. I'm going to be the first to say not all complaints are legitimate and need to be acted on. Not all issues are congruent with the ways of Jesus, but you have to hear. You have to have a posture of listening. You have to hear when someone comes to you as something. And a discernment process is sometimes necessary, and they do that. We're going to hear a little bit more about what they do later on. But if we stop 
at just saying, I'm refusing to listen. That's too hard of a conversation. This is difficult. Well, look at that person. They're doing something worse than what I'm doing. If we dodge it, then these things can't ever be brought to the light. And I love how Ricky pointed out, Ricky Jenkins pointed this out. You have to be willing to listen. One of the reasons that this topic, racism, is such a difficult topic is because our culture tried to sweep it away. It tried to hide it. It even changed aspects of our history in order to not deal in it. We have one of the most overt versions of that is the slave Bible, where an exodus is removed and all talk of liberation is removed and then handed to the slaves so that they wouldn't realize that God wanted them to be free. But it's not always that overt. It gets minimized. It gets brushed under the rug. And then I think often people who are well-meaning get ambushed. They feel ambushed when these topics get brought up because it's been made culturally to be not that big a deal or it's not talked about. And so when it is talked about, it's like, oh, why, like, why are you ambushing me with this right now? And so we constantly will have this, right? Why do we talk about this topic so much? And then I have other people will say, why don't we ever talk about this topic? <laughs> and we live in the world right in the middle of those two things. Um, one of the reasons that we need to continue to talk about this is it's constantly being hidden. But also, I want you to know that the Bible over and over again brings this up. If you're reading your scriptures, the topic should be normalized already in the fact that there is continually nations and ethnicities and cultural tensions that build divisions and hierarchies over and over. Where in the kingdom of heaven is, as we are taught to be called to constantly work in opposition to create true unity and equity. And once again, none of that can take place unless we have a posture of listening. After they listen, they discern. This is what it says in verse three. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, this proposal pleased the whole group. Everyone's happy with it. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and the large number of priests came, became obedient to the faith. When the, when the people begin to cry out and raise their concerns, they are heard. And you have this kind of a smaller group coming into another sizable group, right? And they're saying something's off here. And so they decide we're going to listen. We're going to discern this together. But not just that. We're going to put it into action. We're going to actually be willing to change the ways in which we have set this process up that seemed to have been working perfectly fine before this complaint got brought up. And so the majority group in this situation was not just willing to listen, they were willing to change their ways. They were willing to alter their process. They were willing to shift the method in order to address the problem they had been, uh, that had been brought up to them. So there's all kinds of reasons not to change, right? How many people in here love change? Anyone? I mean, I thought there'd be a few of you that like change. We got one, all right, two, maybe three. How many of you hate change? I mean, somebody, you got to raise your hand on one of those two, right? There are all kinds of reasons not to change. That's the way we've always done it. 
We're protecting traditions. Someone's ego is holding on to what we've already accomplished because we like the way it's working as it is. It seems to be working from my perspective, says the person whose community widows are being taken care of, right? Fear of the future, fear of change. As soon as you mention a change, someone has three reasons why that change isn't going to work. You're tired of pushing, fighting, or advocating for change, so you give it up. And this is, this is how I want to summarize it. When our fondness for the past exceeds our passion for the future, we will struggle to change our methodology even when the change seems obvious. But when you add an extra layer of justice, an issue of injustice there, it also becomes hurtful, it becomes oppressive. So I don't know if you're aware of this, but the church as a whole is not known for being on the cutting edge of cultural ideas, right? Maybe you have witnessed something different than me. That's not always a bad thing, though, right? We want to protect some things and conserve some things. We usually have to, though, when something needs to change, pull it into existence against the natural fabric of the way churches tend to operate. And I want to quote again from Ricky uh, as he spoke on Acts 6. He said, we are not going to, he's speaking on behalf of the Acts, uh, the first century church in Acts 1. He says this of them. They're not going to allow method to stop what God is calling us to do. We are going to continue to be anchored in the rock and geared to the times. Catch that. Anchored to truth and to Jesus, to the rock, and geared to the times. Still malleable in some ways. And so my methodologies can fail and fall as long as my principles of the gospel continue to be consistent in how I lead. In other words, we're not going to so hold on to systems, so hold on to tradition, so hold on to that's the way it's always been done, and limit ourselves from innovation that houses God's original heart for all people to be together in God's church. Now, if you're not amening that one, you didn't hear me. Should I read it again? <laughs> After hearing the voice from the margins and learning that the system of distribution was embedded, uh, sorry, that, that, that there was a, a, a flaw in the system of the distribution embedded or maybe an intentional oppression in this union of the two communities coming together. The status quo was benefiting someone else and they didn't let the method outweigh the changes that needed to be made. And so they come up with a plan. Here's what they do. Choose seven men from among you. All right, side note, if you bring up a complaint, you might be called on to be a part of the solution. Yeah who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, you see qualifications or standards that are established based on biblical ideas. They're still anchored, as Ricky said it, to truth and to Jesus. And it says this, we will turn this responsibility over to them. This proposal pleased the whole group. So everyone agrees, but more so than that, I want you to ask the question, who is the them that they turned it over to? Who, who are the people that then were put in charge? Well, let me try to read these again to you. Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Permenus, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Not a single Hebrew name in there. Most, if not all, of those names are Greek names, and Luke, the writer of Acts, is not in the habit of skipping details. He wants us to know that the leaders they put in charge were actually pulled from the community of the marginalized people group, the people who complained, who felt that there was negligence taking place. He put them in charge. They're still known 
They're still full of the Spirit. They're still wise. All of those were qualifications. Whether intentional or not, the widows were being ignored, and they are not going to be ignored anymore. And so they pull from this Greek-speaking group people who are qualified and say, you're in charge. Let's end this today. And we can't be convinced in our minds and hearts but lack actionable endeavors that work to undo the broken methods. If we see them in our culture, if we see them in our city, if we see them in our own church, and they are discovered, we have a decision to make. Will we, as Common Ground, be a community that's anchored in Jesus, willing to hold tight to truth, but malleable enough in our expressions, our methods, our, our ways of doing things, that we can adjust them whenever they are necessary to keep focused on the things that God has called us to do, to keep fo- focused in bringing new folks into the fold and say, you have a voice to recognize when someone is being neglected in the midst of our current systems, methods, and frameworks and make space for change. I'm going to ask it again. Are you willing to listen and are you willing to change? I think this hits home on a couple of different areas, right? As we engage the issues of racial reconciliation and justice that we have agreed to engage in, as we engage in a church that is constantly changing on the other side of COVID, we're different, right? I sent out that, that uh, video. If you didn't get it, check your email uh, or get on our, our, our connection, our email list so that you can hear them. But there are lots of new people checking out Common Ground now. On the other side of COVID, we've definitely lost a few people. Now we have some people kind of checking things out, and they're a different group with a different identity and a different background and different experiences and different gifts to bring to that table. And I think as we come out of COVID, we're going to have to be mindful of how we bring them into the fold of who we are so that it's not just always the way we've done it. I mean, it's very practical. And it's not always a justice issue. It's just being able to listen and change. And I think for for many of us who have been a part of Common Ground for a while, you're like, oh, well, I mean, we haven't been around long enough to have too many traditions, right? There's some traditions, right? But we haven't been around, like, we're we're still pretty young. Like, we're not holding anyone to anything. But there are times I hear things like, well, that's not really the Common Ground way. Or more often, um, I, I hear this, a longing for the good old days from when we were planted, a longing from the, the, the big, the unique moment of explosive growth that happened with Jeff when Midtown, that campus, the original campus was planted. There were so many leaders, there was money coming out of our ears. It was so exciting. I hear these stories a lot. The Lord bless you. Those were exciting times. I'm thankful for everything that God did in it. But I want us to be warned, let's not get stuck there. Let's not buy into the idea that God doesn't have something for us in our future, who we are now, the identity of Common Ground Northeast moving forward that is just as exciting as the history we've got to experience and what God has brought this church through. I want to see us move into that with some level of embracing and saying, okay, God, what's next? That was amazing, but what's next And I think in order to do that, in order to move forward, we have to be a community that is shaped by being willing to listen to those who are coming in, being willing to change, being willing to anchor in truth, but continue to be malleable. I think we're actually pretty good at it in general. 
But this is a call to just continually be about that, to commit ourselves to this. God may ask us to take risks in the future, and I want us to be committed to those things. God might ask us to sit in a time of silence and rest in just the presence of God and sit by still waters. I want us to be able to do that together, knowing that we have adequately brought everyone to the table that needs to be at the table and speaking into the things that are going on. I'm going to pray for us um, before we, we leave, but I want you to take just a quick moment, and I want you to think on this on a couple of different levels. Corporately as a church, are there things that we need to be more considerate about listening to, and are there things that we need to be more considerate about changing for? All right, just think about that as a church. Maybe if you haven't been at Common Ground very long and you're just checking us out, maybe there's some things on behalf of just the church that you wish they would be more willing to listen and more willing to change in order to accommodate. All right, so consider that. Is there something you personally need to change in your life because you've bought into this idea that things are the way they've always been and that's the way they're going to be and you've shut yourself off from listening? You've shut yourself off from being somebody who can change. And as I pray, I want you to submit that to God. As we pray, I want you to say, God, mold me. Make me more like you, Jesus. Just close, um, I th- it's Olympic season. We gotta cheer for the Olympics, right? Um, and the thought of hurdles uh, entered my mind for this illustration just as we finalize this. In the hurdles, you have a goal. You're trying to get to the finish line and you have these, these barriers, hurdles between you and getting to that. And if the racer's body functions fluidly, they can do that and jump these hurdles. But if they're too rigid, they're gonna knock these things over. They don't have enough uh, mobility to do what they're trying to do and, and the body to stay in as one in order to make sure that they get to their end goal and they don't knock over the hurdles, they don't ruin the race that they're trying to run at the end. And I think there's something beautiful about just that idea of having a sure and steady goal in front of of you, but still being mobile enough to not get caught up on every single barrier along the way as you run the race. I want to pray that we would be fluid but anchored, that we would be mobile but ardently sticking to the gospel of truth. And if there's something that is changing us, if there's rigidity in you personally, in us as a church, that we would submit that together to God right now. Would you pray with me? Now, Father, thank you. God, would you make us like uh, the body of an athlete, different functions, a hand does this, an arm does that, a leg does this, our heart's pumping blood, God, but that we would have this level of mobility that would allow us not to get caught up on the hurdles, but to finish the race well, to do the things you've called us to do well. Would you search our hearts as Psalm 139 says, God, tell us if there is any wayward way within us that we need to seek out, Lord. May we always be a learning, listening church, God. May we be discerners of what we have heard. And if you call us to it, Lord, would we have the flexibility and the mind to change into moving towards whatever it is that you have for us in the future. God, would we long and get excited for that unknown thing, whatever it is.
and not get caught up on the history and the methods and the methodologies that we have created in our past. Free us from that bondage, Lord, if we operate in that. And we ask for this right now in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.